may be seated. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Romans chapter 14. Uh, Shortly, we will be reading, uh, beginning in verse 13 of that chapter. We began in Romans 14 last week. It is rare for me to kind of have a a part two of a sermon. I I have done it before. It's very rare. This is about as close as we would get to a part two. Paul is continuing the very things that he talked about last week, so it would help us to regain sort of the stream of thought that Paul was engaged in by just going over what he has said in the first 12 verses there. He warns those who are strong in faith that they have to welcome those who are weaker in faith. They are to be welcomed because the Lord Jesus Christ has welcomed them. They are not to judge them, nor are the weak to look at the strong and to cast dispersions on them, but rather we are to understand that these things are matters of opinion. There are indeed commands that the Lord gives us. There are things that he commands that we do and things forbidden for us to do. But nevertheless, much of that in the middle is nothing more than opinion. And this ought not get in the way of our unity and ought not get in the way of us coming together. Last week, we talked about the strong and the weak. And he's saying the, the strong were those who understood the sort of reality that Jesus Christ has brought to the world. That that reality includes a new way of viewing food and drink. The strong are not to look down upon the weak, nor the weak to judge those who are strong. We are to welcome each other because Christ has welcomed us. After the sermon last week, we had a potluck, uh, which was fantastic. I was glad that we were able to uh, get together and to have that. And and one of the things that I always appreciate about the time that we have in fellowship is people have a little bit more time to catch me uh, before I have to run away with my family uh, to to ask me about the sermon, to ask me questions. And I had a question last week um, where someone said, you know, I, I understand what Paul is saying there, but when we read those verses and, and after we, we went through the sermon, it, it seems like the strong get to do what the strong want to do and the weak can abstain from the things that they feel lead them into sin. But what happens when the strong engaging in certain actions lead the weak into sin? Which was a brilliant question. It was a brilliant question because Paul himself anticipates that question, which is actually our text this morning. The question becomes... How are the strong to act if the weak can be led into sin? If our freedom and our liberality in Christ leads other into sin, how should we respond? What should we do? Today, Paul handles that question. So let us turn to Romans 14 and begin reading in verse 13 as Paul helps us to think through that very issue. Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died, for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. 
Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is God's holy and errant and perfect word. Within this passage, we have three actors, three people who are doing things. The strong are the center of what Paul is talking about here. Their actions are always in light of those who are weak. But before we get to either of those, we need to first talk about Jesus. So let's first talk about him. We need to kind of set the stage for why it is that meat is even a problem here. For many people, meat is not a problem. You might not like certain kinds of meats, and so you might abstain from eating them, but that's simply because of a personal dislike. What's going on here is clearly more than that. The Jews don't just have a personal dislike of this meat. They feel like it makes them unclean. And so Paul keeps coming back to that idea of unclean. It's not unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. That's religious language. It's not just that they don't like it. They think that it soils them before God somehow to take And so why is it that not only do they feel soiled by it, but why is it that Paul can say, well, it's okay to eat? We begin by going back to Jesus, who is the very first place that Paul stops at. In verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded. Persuaded is a little soft. I I know and am convinced. He's giving this sort of two two-pronged attack, a double-barreled shotgun to say, I, I have no doubts about this at all. I, have, I am not sort of on the fence about this. I know for a fact that there is nothing unclean in itself. Spe- speaking directly of food, nothing is unclean. And he says, I'm convinced of this in the Lord Jesus. Probably better is by the Lord Jesus. Not simply because Paul knows him, and, and probably not simply because by Paul having some sort of like special revelation that Jesus came and told him specifically, Paul, nothing is unclean in itself. But rather, it's likely that Paul got this from the same place that many people would have gotten it, from some oral tradition that was handed down. Before people had access to scriptures, when they would preach the gospel, they would also help people to understand Jesus better by, well, just telling them stories and statements that Jesus had made. Now, eventually, these things needed to be codified, and so we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to help us with that. But it's likely that these stories were passed around in the Greco-Roman world when people heard about Jesus. This was part of making them disciples, was telling them what Jesus said, telling them what what Jesus did. And likely, it's the sort of story that we find in Mark chapter 7 that Paul is speaking of. Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees and the Sadducees get on Jesus because they find that his disciples are eating without washing their hands. Now, that is not a matter of physical cleanliness. They don't actually care about germs or anything like that. Their whole point is that the washing, like you find typically throughout the Old Testament, is symbolic of God cleansing you. They're not worried that they're going to be physically unclean. They're worried, or they think, 
that the disciples eating without washing their hands makes them spiritually unclean before God. And so Jesus says, well, that's just not the case. Washing your hands doesn't make you spiritually clean before God. So remember that when you tell your kids to wash their hands before they eat dinner. If they quote Mark 7 to you, make sure that you tell them that you are not spiritually unclean before me, but you must wash your hands. So Jesus then turns to people and he extends that far beyond just talking about the traditions of men versus the commandments of God. And he says this, beginning in verse 14 of Mark 7. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now, it seems like the parable is pretty straightforward, but you've got to understand this is quite distinct from any teaching that they have ever heard. Because I guarantee you, they think of pigs themselves as defiled and defiling And so for Jesus to say things like this would have absolutely flipped them sideways. And so they ask him, says, can you clarify this? Ask him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Mark then writes, thus he declared all foods clean. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within, and they defile a person. So Jesus is quite clearly saying, listen, it doesn't matter what food you eat, it doesn't defile you. Which is, again, quite interesting because you can hear what Jesus says and you can go back and you can read in the law that that is just not true. Like the law is quite clear. The things that are outside of you, if you eat them, do indeed defile you. It's not a minor part of the Jewish law either. An entire chapter in Leviticus is handed over to describing the kinds of foods that you can eat and can't eat. So when it comes to animals, God gives very clear regulations as to what animals can be eaten and can't be eaten. You can eat any animal that chews the cud and has a cloven hoof. However, if there's an animal that chews the cud but doesn't have a cloven hoof, you can't do that. You can't do one of them. It's got to be both of those. Pigs, for instance, have cloven hooves, but they don't chew the cud, so you can't eat pigs. Leviticus 11, 7 and 8. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So if that's what Leviticus says, then how can Jesus say it doesn't matter what's outside of you, it can't make you unclean? Well, that's a really good question. It's clear the types of animals that you can eat and can't eat. It's clear the types of fish you can eat and can't eat. He goes around with birds and even insects telling what kinds of things you can and can't eat. The question really about the food laws is, why are they there anyway? Why is it that we need to have animals that have cloven hooves and chew the cud? What is special about those animals that allows us to eat them? Because neither in Leviticus, nor in Deuteronomy, nor in Numbers, nor anywhere in the law are we ever explained why it is that that's the case. I've heard people try to explain it, 
They explain it typically through an appeal to health. Right? They say, well, God knew that that wasn't good for them. They knew that shellfish, for instance, like they, they, if you don't cook them properly, his people will get sick and, and possibly die. So it was a way of God to keep his people healthy. Listen, everybody knows how to cook bacon. And I don't think the Jews wouldn't have figured out how to cook bacon without getting sick. It's not a matter of health. These are the same kind of people who, by the way, go to the book of Daniel and think that they can have radiant skin if they just eat vegetables all day. Perhaps that's the case. I don't know. I'm not going to try. So it's not health. What's the purpose of this? I think the purpose of this goes back to the very things that we talked about last week. God has separated certain things, and he's brought certain things together. So the things that are to be separated are to stay separated. The things that are to be brought together must be brought together and kept together. In the Old Testament, it's clear that God's people were to be separated from all the other peoples in the world. And that meant that they were to be separated in every single facet of their life. The way they pursued justice was to be different from the way everyone else pursued justice. The way they worshipped God was to be different. The God they worshipped was different. The very way that they handled authority was to be different. The very way they cared for the poor and the impoverished was to be different. The way they thought of foreigners and outsiders and sojourners was to be different. Even the clothing they wore was to be different. He says, listen, you're not allowed to mix your fabrics. You have to be particular about this. And certainly that goes for food. The food you eat is going to be particular. It's not going to be like everybody else. They can eat pigs. They can eat shellfish. Let them go after it. You are not to do that. And food, by the way, has this particular effect of truly setting them aside. Because while we might eat with a variety of different people at a variety of different times, for Jews and for anyone in the Middle East, at that time to sit down and share a meal with someone was to be unified with them and to have fellowship with them and to enjoy their company as equals. The Jews simply could not do that. They could not share a meal with someone. They couldn't share a meal with a foreign nation. King David couldn't sit down with a, with a king from another nation and share a meal with him as though they were equals and as though they were going to be bound together somehow. It just wouldn't happen. God, in this way, is keeping his people quite separate. But something has changed. What has changed is Jesus. Jesus has come from the line of David as one of the men of Israel and by dying on the cross and being raised, he has opened the floodgates so that all nations, tongues, and tribes, and peoples may come to him for salvation. Which means no longer can there possibly be a separation of one group of people from another based on cultural distinctives. That cannot possibly be the case anymore because those cultural distinctives are blown up. You don't need to become Jewish to be a Christian. You don't need to take on a specific culture to be a Christian. And so therefore, the food laws are gone because that distinction is gone. No longer are the external distinctions of the, the manner of your clothing or the kind of food you eat, the very stuff that defines you as in the kingdom or out of the kingdom, but the simple declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord and following the pattern and example that he left for us as to what it means to follow him as Lord as he gives us commands to do and to forbid. Therefore, it's not that God changed his mind or that the food was somehow tainted. It wasn't that pigs were actually bad and then God said, well, okay, maybe they're okay. The whole point of this is that the food was wrong because God wanted his people to be particular, but now his people are not particular in that way anymore. 
It's not unlike dessert in my house. My kids are not allowed to have dessert before dinner. This is pretty standard, I would think, but we kind of hold tight to it. So if they walk out of the kitchen with a brownie in their hand, not only am I going to make them watch me eat that brownie as a fatherly duty, but they will then lose dessert after that unless for some reason mom has given them specific permission to eat that. Either way, I'm probably going to eat the brownie and they're probably going to be out. So, but the brownie isn't bad in itself, right? The brownie isn't bad in itself. It's just the wrong time to eat it. This is precisely what's going on with the food, the food isn't bad in itself. You'll notice what Leviticus 11, 7, and 8 say both times. It doesn't simply say pigs are unclean. That is not what it says. What it says is it is unclean to you. It is unclean to you. At this time and in this place, you are not to eat it. But now it is unclean for no one. It is perfectly acceptable to eat. This is what Paul means when he comes around in verse 17, and this is the impact of this for our particular passage, when he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. I don't even think the word matter should be in there. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, and I would go even further to say, the kingdom of God is not defined by eating and drinking. It was. Israel was defined, at least in part, by what they ate and what they drank, what they were allowed to and what they weren't allowed to. And Paul is saying, that's not the case anymore. You're not defined anymore by eating and drinking. What you are defined by is what? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which maps really, really well to the argument theologically that Paul laid out in Romans 1 through 8. Chapters 1 through 3 ending in the righteousness of God being given through Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, because we've been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. Chapter 8, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that the joys that are about to be revealed to us are nothing compared to the current sufferings that we have, that we have testified to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. All of it focuses on the work of Christ and what he has done and what he provides to us. These are the things that define those who are in the kingdom. What defines people in the kingdom is the work of Jesus Christ and their confession of that good work. So no longer should we be concerned with what is unclean or what is clean. That brings us then to the weak. The weak are weak because they don't quite get that. The weak are weak because they, they don't quite feel the stability of that. They still think that they are going to have to keep food from themselves somehow. They, they, they're concerned about their position before God. They're being clean before God because of this. Or they simply have a repulsion at the food because of the way they were brought up. Who knows what it is, but they think that eating that food is sinful. They don't feel okay doing it. So Paul uses a number of very, very strong words to define the position that the weak are in. They seem to always be on a precipice. And it's not a minor thing. The precipice has a cavern on the other side of it that leads straight to condemnation. These are the words that he uses. Three times over, he talks about them stumbling, which is always a matter of, of not achieving faith. They don't have the right faith. They don't have a strong enough faith. Their faith has failed them, and they've stumbled. They are hindered. They are grieved. They are destroyed. They have evil done to them. There is judgment that comes upon them. They are condemned and they sin. Those are not light words. 
They describe the weak as incredibly frail in the faith, always near to be falling. This is not meant to deny the election of God. It's not meant to deny his sovereignty in salvation, but Paul is simply looking at this from a human perspective. These are people who have rightly confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, and by all accounts, they appear to have a saving faith. But if the strong continue to act in such a way to alienate the weak, their faith is not strong enough to take that. And you can just destroy somebody even by the foods that you eat. How can they fall? I think Paul gives a number of ways in which the weak here might fall. First, they can fall by acting. They can fall simply by partaking in something that they think is sinful. That because they've seen the strong do it, they've watched the strong do it, for whatever reason, even though they think it's wrong, by peer pressure or by whatever, they start to engage in behavior that they think is wrong. Which is precisely what Paul is getting at in verse 23 when he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. They don't believe that it's okay. It's not meaning that it comes without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What he means is they don't believe that eating is right. They think that eating is sinful before God. And yet, because of other factors, they're choosing to do it anyways. Even if it's not wrong, thinking that you're acting against the will of God and then acting against the will of God is sinful. It's sinful in its desire. And so Paul says, and they're condemned if they eat. So they sin in action and in acting. They can also fall by doubting. I think this is related to the idea of destruction and even the doubts that they have. They look at the freedom that the strong have. They look at the liberalities that they have. And they, they see them engaging in things that the weak look at and say, but that's sinful. But it's sinful. And they hear the strong continually talk about how Jesus has liberated them to do this very thing. The fact that they can eat this food and drink this wine is a testimony to the work of Jesus Christ, even as we've said. But they don't see it that way. And so when they see the strong continually acting that way, it's sort of this perverse way of answering Paul's question from Romans chapter 6. Grace has come so that sin might abound. There he says, by no means. But these Jews, looking at the way the Greeks are handling themselves, say, well, it kind of seems that way. How can I follow a Jesus who seems to promote sin in the lives of his people. They fall then by doubting. They think that grace has come, allowing sin to abound and abound and abound. And Paul says, if your eating does this to them, you just shouldn't eat. Third, I think importantly, the weak can fall by grieving. They are offended, they are put off, and they are sorrowful by the actions that others are taking. If we were to put this sort of in modern terms, the weak just simply don't fit in. They, they see the strong. And especially here in Rome, the strong likely being Gentile believers, the Jews likely being the weak believers, would have been vastly outnumbered. There would have been Jews present, but they would not have been nearly as numerous as the Greeks or the Romans who were present there. And watching them handle themselves, watching them at these feasts eating certain meats and drinking certain things that they don't feel comfortable eating or drinking, they start to look around and say, I don't know that we belong here. I don't know that we can be here. 
I don't think that they actually want us here. We can't sit down and have fellowship with them. We can't enjoy being with them because they just continually engage in things that we just feel completely wrong and out of place. I think that this is exactly what Paul's getting at when he continually talks about you need to welcome them. He begins the very first statement in chapter 14 by saying they are to be welcomed among you. You are to make sure that they feel like they fit in, that they are a part of the body of Christ. Even if their faith is weak, the strong, even if they are the majority, are to bend for the weak, even if they're the minority, to make sure that they feel acceptable. The whole point is that the weak should never feel like they are outsiders, especially in the church. They shouldn't feel like they are excluded from things. They shouldn't feel like they are always going to be outside of the the clique that really gets it. Because when that happens, what Paul is saying is their faith is not strong enough to take that. And if you exclude them, and you continue to exclude them, you will destroy the one from whom Christ died. There is one thing that the weak can provide that the strong will never have without them. And that is the knowledge of their weakness. It's not like they've got t-shirts printed, right? The reason why this came up is because it was clearly and evidently an issue in Rome. The Jews spoke about it. The Greeks understood that this was an issue. Paul speaks about it as though everyone is clear that this is an issue that's causing problems here. And for a good number of people, they don't want to mention stuff like this because they're embarrassed by it, or they feel like it makes them even more of an outsider, or it makes them seem like they're weak. Okay, fine, it makes you seem like you're weak. But you have to give the strong an opportunity to welcome you. If you feel like you're on the outside looking in, if you, if you feel like you don't understand why people act the way they do or do the things they do, the only thing that will help the strong show you and demonstrate, give them the opportunity to love you by not engaging in those activities. And the only way they're going to know is if you speak up. The only way they're going to know is if you stand up and say, man, I, I don't know, I, I can't do that. I feel pricked in my conscience. Even looking at that gives me a queasy feeling. Let us know. That brings us then to the strong. The vast, vast majority of this passage is written to the strong and how they are to handle themselves. I have a couple of things to say just in summary. First, you cannot possibly rely on sort of an individualism when you come to a text like this. It is very easy for people, before you read this text, to say, okay, what if you were to go somewhere and and you were to engage in some activity that Christ does not forbid, and somebody looks at it, and they are led to sin because of it. I think the vast majority of Christians would look at a situation like that, whether they're mature or immature. The vast majority, certainly of Americans, would say, well, I don't see why that's my problem. I'm not doing anything that's wrong. I'm just not responsible for how other people interpret actions. I'm not responsible for their sin. It's a temptation for them. Well, that's fine for them. Am I doing anything wrong? No. So therefore, I'm not responsible for them. They're individually responsible for their own sin and for their own actions and for their own faith. 
I'm not responsible for it. And if I'm free in Christ to act this way, if I'm free in Christ to do these things, and you can't tell me I'm wrong in doing them, I don't know why I'm being blamed. And Paul says, nah, you're blamed. You're guilty. The, the question rings a lot like Cain and Abel. Abel's been slaughtered. God comes. says, where's your brother? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah. Yeah, you are. You just, you are. You're not an individual. You're not. All alone by yourself, floating in this world of other individuals. You have been brought together in a body of Christ. You have been purchased to be placed in that body. This is the whole idea behind God keeping separate what is separate, but what he has brought together needs to be brought together, and you have been brought together. You are not alone. You are, whether you like it or not, hitched in such a way to the person who is beside you to watch out for them and to care for them. And if your actions over opinions leads them to sin, you are guilty of it. And no amount of appealing to the fact that what you were doing was not strictly forbidden by Scripture is being wrong as a way of clearing you, is never going to stand. Because Scripture is here clear. If your freedom brings others sin, you have sinned. Paul says very clearly, you have not walked in love. By what you are doing, you are destroying the one for whom Christ has died. Which means, secondly then, you ought to love your brothers and sisters who are weaker. You are to love them. You are to love them by doing the very thing that Paul has already appealed for you to do. Back in Romans 12, 9 and 10, your love ought to be genuine for them. You ought to be really concerned about them. That is the exact opposite of what this sort of individualistic response says. An individualistic response is just trying to justify your own actions. Paul doesn't want you to do that. He wants your love to be genuine. He wants you to outdo one another in showing honor. That includes to people who you might think are weaker in the faith. Allow them to be weaker. Outdo them in showing honor and deflect that. Don't engage in activities that can lead your brother astray. Answer simple questions. Is it right to love food more than your neighbor? Is it right to love drink more than your brother? Is it right to love your opinion more than a sister in the Lord? No, give such things up. Insist on loving first. Then, thirdly, make sure that you are accepted by Christ. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. You are not just serving another individual in the Lord. You're not just serving a random person on the street. You're not just serving a random person in this church. You are serving none less than Jesus Christ himself. You are called, not as your own, but you are Christ's. So serve the Lord. Do so with zeal. By serving others, you serve Christ, for you are serving the body. Jesus makes this plan. Matthew 25, he separates, he has a parable about the judgment. He says, I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats. I'm going to look at the sheep and I'm going to be like, why don't you come and you inherit the kingdom that's been set aside for you? Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. You did all these things for me. And the sheep are going to look at him and they're going to say, I, I got to be honest. I, I don't remember doing any of that. 
Like, I, I kind of want the kingdom and all, but I should probably be honest with you, I don't know that I fit in that because I didn't do that for you. And Jesus says very clearly, yeah, yeah, you did. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it also to me. Do not just see your weaker brother or sister as an anchor on your liberty and on your fun. See them as an opportunity to serve the Lord, to work with them, to help them, to encourage them. And fourthly, then, know when to use such freedoms. Paul says in verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. That doesn't mean that you're not to go evangelize. It means that if you believe that it's right to drink and you believe that it's right to eat, you don't have to throw that in front of other people's face. You can still do it as a private matter. You just can't do it as a public matter. If it leads your brothers to sin, if it leads those Jews to have problems, when you guys get together, don't eat pork. Eat something that they can eat as well. If you want to eat pork, Paul says, do it on your own time. It's perfectly free. No one's knowing. No one's going to fall. No one's going to be grieved. Do it on your own time, but you don't do it together. Now, we, probably very few of us, struggle with the kinds of food that we eat. Again, we might have qualms about what is good and what isn't when it comes to food, but we're not like religiously offended by it. The bigger problem quite clearly for Americans and especially fairly conservative Americans and especially Baptist Americans is alcohol. And so we in our covenant quite clearly state, or actually I should say it differently, quite clearly don't state, it screams by its absence, anything really about alcohol. And you can go to just about any other Baptist church, just about any other Baptist church, and they're going to say, you cannot drink and be a part of this church. And we simply don't do that because we just don't think that we should bind people's conscience where Scripture doesn't bind it. It's quite clear that people in the first century not only could get drunk off of what they drank, but then were also allowed to drink and not get drunk. There's just nothing in the Bible that tells us anything differently. So we don't want to you know, hem people in where the scriptures don't hem them in. So you are free to enjoy alcohol on your own so long as you're not getting drunk. But I guarantee you, you will never be free to do that when we are gathered together. You'll never be free to do it. Not because it's wrong, but because we don't know where we might be leading a brother or sister astray. We don't know where somebody's going to be tempted to sin before us by taking alcohol, whether it's because of past sin in their lives or because of the way they were brought up in fundamentalism or simply because they've seen the societal effects of it and think that it's wrong. It doesn't matter the reason why. If they're going to be led astray by it, we're just better off not doing it. And so we'll never do it. We'll never, ever do it. When the church gathers together, we're never going to have it. You want to do it in your personal time, short of sinning by getting drunk, you are more than welcome to do so. But we will never do it together because we have to know when we can enjoy our freedoms. Keep your freedoms between you and God. Now, if you want to get together with other people, you're going to get together, you're going to have a game night, you're going to play, play games, and you're going to have a couple of beers. If they're okay with it, perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. But the minute that you stop inviting people to that game solely because you know Carl has a problem with alcohol, and if you invite Carl, then you're not going to be able to drink transgression because now you are excluding people from fellowship solely over an issue that is nothing but opinion. Nothing but opinion. 
Don't do it. Know when to use such freedoms. And be introspective. Paul goes on to say, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. This begs for us to actually judge ourselves for what we're approving and what we're disapproving. Look at your life. Are you living your life in such a way that you're walking by love so that the things that you are approving of, the things that you're engaging in aren't leading other people astray? He says there is a great blessing in a man who can say, I am working hard to, up build, to build up for mutual upbuilding and making peace between brothers and sisters in the Lord. There is a great blessing for him, a blessing that I think Paul would say outshines any blessing that pork can bring. And Paul, by this time, had tasted bacon, and he knows what it's like. And he's saying it's better to absolve yourself and never to eat bacon and to know the blessing of not being judged because of what you've approved. Let us do so just as Paul did. That is a blessing that you can have as well. Approve that which builds one another up in the faith. Help to strengthen the resolve of those who are weaker in faith and judge it right and appropriate to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in front of the faith of another believer. In doing this, friends, we are in great company. 1 Corinthians is, again, a, a very beautiful parallel passage to everything that Paul says here, completely and utterly different context. But he comes to the same sort of conclusions. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he speaks of all the rights that he has, that he has foregone, that he, he doesn't want anything to do with because he wants to win people to the Lord. And in verse 19 of that chapter, he says this, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but rather under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Be weak for those who are weak. Go through the same problems that they've got. Live mutually with them in a bond of unity, trying to increase their faith and strengthen them. It's perfectly fine to say, I don't agree with you on that, but I will never, ever do anything that would lead you into sin. If you think it's wrong and the Lord has not made a definitive mark on that, brother, I will, I will stop engaging in that to help you, to encourage you in the Lord. For you, out of love, I will lay these things down. And in that, we are not just imitating Paul. We are imitating Paul as he imitates Christ. Paul says, have the mind of Christ who with all of the prerogatives of divinity, all of the, the rights and privileges that are due to him as God, laid all of those down so that he might die your death, taking on what was not due to him. By not taking what was due to him, he takes on what was not due to him so that you might have life in him. By all means, love your brothers, walking in the mind of Christ, and demonstrate what being strong in the Lord truly means. Let's pray. 
Jesus, in giving us your spirit, help us to be more like you. Help us to cultivate love among one another, to walk with love and humility with our brothers and sisters, always building them up in the faith. Make us aware of our opinions. Humble us so that we might lay them aside and give us an understanding of our failings before one another. And all of this, build us up into the maturity of unity that you desire for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would stand.